It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Good afternoon. Welcome to Christ the King. As Keith said, uh, he has set a series for us for the rest of the summer in the book of Psalms. And today our text from God's Word is Psalm 22. Uh, and if you have your Bibles uh, handy, we will get to our text in a moment. But first, by way of background, I want to talk about the Trinity. Now that might seem a bit strange since Trinity Sunday was nine weeks ago. But for those who have been joining in our catechism classes over the last many months, as we have been studying the Apostles' Creed, we've been talking about the Trinity a lot. Because knowing the one true living God as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is foundational to our Christian faith. For Josiah and Glenn and I, as we were preparing to teach catechism, uh, we did a lot of reading up on the doctrine of the Trinity, and if, if you were to do the same reading, um, you'd find that theologians talking about the doctrine of the Trinity quote a lot of scripture, some from the Old Testament, but mostly from the New Testament. But think back for a moment to the time when the church began, immediately after the events of Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the church that we read about in the book of Acts didn't have the New Testament. The New Testament had not been written yet. And furthermore, writing it was not their highest priority. Their highest priority was proclaiming Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the only scriptures the church had at that time and would have for decades were Israel's scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Yet from the word go, the apostles and soon to be joined by Paul were out there proclaiming all the things that ended up being written into the New Testament, all the things by which we know the one true living God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when they were proclaiming these things about Jesus, whose resurrection they had witnessed, about the Holy Spirit, whose empowering 
they were experiencing. They would prove that these things were true by quoting from the Old Testament. It's all that they had. Every week after reading a psalm um, or a canticle today in our worship service, we say, Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. God has not changed. Having always existed from eternity past, he did not, during the reign of Augustus Caesar, for example, suddenly develop a three-way schizophrenia. And so the scriptures by which God revealed himself in the history of his relationship with Israel bear witness to who he has always been and always will be. Three persons, one God. Now, having said this, I'm not pretending there are no difficulties or controversies with it. In fact, in the history of the church, there have been many difficulties and controversies uh, with this because of the following question. How did the earliest church, consisting mainly of Jews and affirming the authority of Israel's scriptures, go from Jewish monotheism, belief in one God, period, to Trinitarian monotheism, believing that the one God subsists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How did this happen? Uh, this has been a live question for a long time and right up to today. There have been lots of theories about how this happened, and there have been some theories that say it didn't happen, that the earliest church didn't believe in God as Trinity, and that the Trinity was a Greek philosophical distortion imposed some three centuries after the birth of the church. Friends, this is not just an academic matter. The view that the earliest church didn't believe in God as Trinity is at the root of some of the most destabilizing attacks on the Christian faith today. Anyways, let's skip to something that has obvious importance for how the earliest church understood God, and that is how they read Israel's scriptures. I want to encourage you today to listen afresh to our text from those scriptures, Psalm 22, that Echo read for us. And here in it, the way the early church apparently heard it, as not just a text that points ahead to Jesus Christ and the cross with a grab bag of 
prophetic references mysteriously embedded in some otherwise unknown experience of David. But as words spoken by God the Son to God the Father about the salvation plan of God, the cross, and the resurrection. I'm talking here about a way of reading the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms and the Prophets, that is attested in the New Testament and in the writings of the earliest Christians uh, immediately following the Apostles. In this reading strategy, the reader listens carefully to the text of Scripture and identifies persons speaking. It's like having the script of a play in front of you, except without the labels uh, of the uh, people speaking and, and when. And then carefully listening and identifying the characters or persons and what each says. The persons that the earliest Christians identified in Israel's scriptures were God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Friends, the claim here is that the doctrine of the Trinity was not some obscure Greek philosophical distortion imposed on Christianity hundreds of years after Jesus Christ. Rather, the claim is that the doctrine of the Trinity emerged naturally as the earliest Christians were schooled in the Apostles' teaching, with the Apostles having been taught by the risen Christ when he interpreted to them in all of Israel's scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, as you can imagine, uh, careful, prayerful discipline is needed in this way, as in every way, of reading the Old Testament, and the New Testament, for that matter. There is a, a word we use a lot when we talk about how we read the Bible. The word is exegesis. The word exegesis means taking out from a text the intended meaning of that text. It's like this, the meaning comes out or exits the scriptures and hits us right between the eyes. That's exegesis. Exegesis is what we want to be doing in reading scripture, taking out the meaning that God, the ultimate author of scripture, intended. But the ever-present danger is that Instead of taking out of Scripture God's intended meaning, we read into Scripture some other meaning. It turns out that in the first couple of centuries of the Christian Church, there were uh, plenty of folks, we call them the Gnostics, who were also claiming to hear voices in Israel's Scriptures. Except instead of identifying the persons of the Trinity, they claimed to find an evil God who, with his minions, 
created the world to trap spirits in material bodies. And they also claimed to find a spirit of truth that brought escape for those trapped spirits through learning the right secret knowledge. The Gnostics saw Jesus as saving people from the wicked God of the Old Testament. They interpreted Jesus' incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection in radically different ways that were the source of much heresy, much wrong teaching about God. Nevertheless, the earliest Christians did not throw out the reading strategy of identifying persons. Instead, they put careful boundaries on its valid use to distinguish it from what the Gnostics were doing. The Gnostics were reading into Israel's scriptures the characters they wanted to support their distorted salvation story. Whereas early Christians were recognizing the persons of the Trinity in dialogue about God's true salvation through Jesus Christ. This brings us to Psalm 22. So if you have your Bibles, please uh, open them to Psalm 22. I'm using the English Standard Version. In different places in the New Testament, um, the writers affirm that this psalm was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And reading the psalm, we can surely see why. Jesus quoted the first line of it from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are mocking gestures and words that remind us of the onlookers at the crucifixion in verse 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. There are descriptions of a torturous execution in figurative language, but punctuated with details that exactly match the crucifixion. Look at verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. And also look down at verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Then there is a very dynamic uh, or dramatic uh, shift in the psalm. In verses 19 and 20, there are desperate pleas to be saved from death. These climax in verse 21a, save me from the mouth of the lion. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, in verse 21b, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You can't tell in the English, but there is no hint of change in verse 21 until the very last word. 
in the Hebrew. A more literal uh, translation of the word order for verse 21 would be, save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen, you have heard me. But you've got to know something has changed when verse 22 is full-on praise for rescue. And in the whole rest of the song, the praise is spreading out from family to congregation in verse 22, to nation in verse 23, to all the nations in verse 27, and then down through the generations in verses 30 and 31. The dramatic shift in the psalm between verse 21 and 22 speaks of Jesus' resurrection. Death has been conquered and praise spreads out to the ends of the earth. With the gospel message going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to every corner of the earth. Finally, the words at the end of the psalm sound very much like words that Jesus spoke just before he died on the cross. Take a look at verse 31. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Jesus said, it is finished. It is accomplished when he bowed his head and died on the cross. And in the psalm, the message, he has done it, is the good news that is proclaimed around the globe and down through the generations. Because the cross and the resurrection are two parts of the same thing, God's salvation. I like how an Anglican bishop, Leslie Newbegin, said it. The resurrection is not the reversal of a defeat, but the proclamation of a victory. In other words, the cross worked. Sin and its consequence, death, are beaten. Praise the Lord. So Psalm 22 certainly finds fulfillment in the crucifixion, and also, it would seem, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what kind of fulfillment is it? This is a Psalm of David. Yet the words of the psalm that so closely match Jesus' experiences do not match any experiences of David about which we know. David endured a lot of suffering, but not an execution like the one depicted in this psalm. So when David speaks the words of Psalm 22, he's going beyond any particular experience of his own. Instead, it seems David is speaking as a prophet. There's a great example of this kind of understanding of David as a prophet um, in Acts chapter 2. So um, we're going to turn there. It's, it's Apostle, the Apostle Peter's sermon at Pentecost. So um, keep a finger 
in Psalm 22, but turn to Acts chapter 2. And we'll be starting uh, our look here in verse 25. So again, this is uh, the Apostle Peter speaking his sermon on Pentecost, and he quotes Psalm 16. He quotes it as evidence that God raised Jesus from the death, from dead, from the dead, making him both Lord and Christ. So listen closely to Peter's argument. Uh, we're beginning at verse 25. So first he quotes these words spoken by David in Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So David says, I, me, and my in these verses, but Peter claims he cannot be referring to himself. Rather, Peter claims that as a prophet, David is speaking these words from Psalm 16 in the person of someone else. So continuing to read from verse 29, Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of that we are all witnesses. In other words, Peter claims that God the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophet David in the character of God the Son, speaking words first about God the Father in verse 25, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. And then speaking words addressed to God the Father, in verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy ones see corruption. There are other examples in the New Testament and early Christian writings of this kind of reading. Keith spoke about one such example uh, when he was preaching from the Hebrews series. Chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews quotes a couple of verses from Psalm 40 and interprets them as God the Son speaking to God the Father about his upcoming incarnation and mission. So let me now talk to you about how the early church read Psalm 22. They read it not just as 
David speaking prophetically about Jesus Christ, but as David speaking in the person of God the Son. Actually, they saw the whole Trinity involved. God the Holy Spirit gave David a script of God the Son speaking to and about God the Father. Now, I don't think we should see this as David receiving a mindless dictation. Just now we read the Apostle Peter saying that David foresaw and spoke. Perhaps David as prophet received a script as part of a vision. Or perhaps through David's walk with God and his reflections on Israel's walk with God, the Holy Spirit gave him insight, conviction, and hope. Insight into the reality of suffering in God's service. Conviction of the power of crying out for deliverance to God who is both trustworthy and sovereign. And hope that suffering will not get the last word because God saves. God even raises from the dead. But however David received this script some thousand years before Jesus was born, it was written down and passed down generation after generation in the hymn book of Israel. For a thousand years, this psalm taught God's people to pray in the midst of their own experiences of suffering trusting and crying out to God for deliverance and hoping in his ultimate rescue. But when Jesus Christ came, he seems to have recognized that this psalm vividly described the death and resurrection that would be accomplished, that would accomplish his mission for which he was sent. And so on the cross, as God the Son experienced God the Father abandoning him unto death, as he bore the sins of the world, he took up the first line of the script. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet he must have known the rest of the script. He must have known his death would not be in vain. He knew that God the Father was entirely trustworthy and would rescue him, and that he would live to praise the Father for the rescue by which death itself was beaten. And the message of God's salvation would go to the ends of the earth. So as a conclusion to this sermon, I'm going to read through the whole psalm once more. So if you haven't done so already, you can turn back to Psalm 22. And as I read, let your mind dwell on images from the Garden of Gethsemane, 
the passion and the crucifixion, and then afresh be taken by surprise by the drama of the resurrection and the spread of the good news everywhere forever. But also as you listen to God the Son speaking to God the Father, don't be afraid to take up this script in your own prayers to God. Reflecting on your own and others' experiences in God's, of suffering in, in God's service. Remembering who God is in your life and in history. And hoping in the God who saves. This is what Israel did with this psalm for a thousand years before the coming of their Savior and ours. Listen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Get ready to jump the gap. From the horns of the wild oxen, you have heard me. Now jumping the gap. 
I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Pinned to the cross, God the Son, bowed his head and said, it is accomplished. But in his glorious resurrection body ascended and seated on the throne of grace in heaven, where we will one day join him in our own resurrection bodies, he praises God the Father who raised him from the dead and says, he has done it. Hallelujah. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.